I want to share one paradox that comes to mind as we talk about how to make uh, resistance work healing, which is that on the one hand, as others have shared, just the act of being in resistance spaces is incredibly liberating for the person who's involved, right? Because these institutions of power have told particularly marginalized people that they don't have power, that we just have to accept the realities that we're living in. And to cut through that delusion and say, no, we actually have power to change our own conditions, that we have agency is incredibly liberating and, and, and can be healing in and of itself. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Well. I'm Carrie Kelly, and I am back with my dear friend and co-conspirator, Mickey Scott Bay Jones from the Faith Matters Network. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Carrie. So this episode, which features Kazuhaga, Zan West, Kareen Luck, and the organizers from the Chilean movement La Coordinadora Feminista 8M, is from a three-part series called How We Get Through collective resilience in a world on fire that aired this fall, fall 2020, which was a time in our country where we were literally on fire. California and other parts of the country were raging during the time of this series. But we are also amidst many pandemics at once. The pandemic of COVID, the pandemic that is structural and cultural racism, the pandemic of record inequality, and of course the pandemic that is climate change. And what is different about this series, besides the fact that it features the most brilliant movement leaders, is that it explores not just what we do in the face of this fire, but how we be together, how we keep going and meet whatever comes next so that we can bring about the future that we all deserve. Yeah, and we realize that our movements aren't going anywhere. I don't know about you, but I am still getting emails and texts and being invited to webinars, and I am totally zoomed out at this point, <laughs> um, despite getting all these you know, invitations to webinars about where we go next, how we keep fighting, how we must be ready for the next step. And all of that is true. And how do we take care of ourselves and each other as we continue to show up? So Kazu, Zan, Bree, and Lara from LCF8M drew us into this conversation about their movements and how healing has really been woven into um, these movements from building relationships and small teams to exploring how to create containers for rage and healing in the streets and bring in intentional joy. And I also have to shout out our homegirl, uh, Kareen Luck, who was the facilitator, who did an amazing job, an amazing yes. activist in her own right, <laughs> um, and brilliant facilitator. And, and just a note about who these folks are, because these are 
a particular type of activist, um, people that I also consider spiritual activists, you know, maybe not as high profile as the folks you see on flyers or speaking on talk shows or with a microphone at um, big national actions. Not that those kinds of folks don't do good work or have a place in movement, but the folks in this conversation are the kind that are doing steady, long-term work day in and day out with their neighbors, with small and large networks, um, with in, in their communities, uh, and even individually uh, with the people that they walk beside. And so um, I'm holding a lot of questions after this, um, and I know you are too, mm-hmm. Carrie. I mean, the one of the ones that really has touched me and has unfolded as I've had more time to think is um, the feminist activists from LCF ADEM, you know, first of all, they do everything as a group. Even the the two folks that were um, part of this conversation, they decided as a group who would be the two that would come and be on, um, you know, a part of this conversation. And they told this story that I really want you to listen for because it you you know it could be easy to miss, but they talked about how they had embroidered the names of 39 victims of femicide into their clothing when they marched. And it made me think about the AIDS quilt. And also, um, I come from the world of birth work. And um, at one point, we had the safe motherhood quilt um, that was that were quilt squares for women who had died in childbirth. And so it just got me thinking about how we literally and figuratively weave the pain and the mourning and the remembering into our actions, into our ways of social change. And like, what are even more creative ways that we can do that? Or how do we just make sure we're doing that as we move forward so that we're we're carrying um, those people and their legacies and how they've deeply impacted us at, into the work that we're doing? Hmm. That reminds me also of what Zan said, right, at, at the beginning of the conversation about how to move forward, we have to go back and get what has been left behind. So powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That That's that whole principle of Sankofa, which is, you know, right. totally my thing. And so if you've never heard about Sankofa, she's going to be talking about that. Um, and even that, um, you know, are we, you know, are we really interested in liberation for everybody? Um, right. even, even folks we might not agree with or might not currently be throwing down with, right? How do we actually open it up um, so that we can, you know, include more people into this liberation? Yeah, that question really stuck with me after um, this this conversation, this series. Um, and this is something that, that Kazu brought up, right? Um, yeah. And, and challenged us to reflect on, do we believe that our liberation is bound or do we believe that our liberation is, is only selectively bound, is bound up only with people who agree with us? And, you know, I had to really, I had to stop and think about that, Mickey. You know, yeah. I had to really like um, reckon with the ways in which um, my liberation work and, and my activism is, is exclusive. 
yeah. um, or is selective or favors certain people. Um, and that does feel like an essential question for this moment, right? And then what is what does that look like in, in practice, right? Like, what does that look like with boundaries where we, we hold the humanity of, of, of everyone, right, in the conversation, whether or not we agree, but we also have boundaries yeah. um, that protect ourselves and, and one another. And so um, that was a really provocative question. Um, that I'm, I'm still sitting with. Yeah. And as we're, you know, uh, I think some of us are constantly in an evaluation phase, but like for me right now, I'm in a, in a time of kind of looking back and looking forward. And, you know, the question came up of what's our definition of success? Mm. You know, what actually means that uh, our goals were achieved or uh, that, the thing we wanted to happen happened, right? Is it um, like what? What are the? What are our metrics? Um, and so, even uh, examining that when we're talking about can healing be a part of our movements uh, for social change? Uh, is it time to reexamine what what we mean by success? Mm-hmm. I love that question. That's a question we. Um... We center a lot because I think often what's missing from the metrics that you just named and, and from our our, um, our dominant measurements is how we feel. Like, what will it feel like when we will have been successful, right? Rather than, you know, what is the evidence or the metrics or what will it look like? Or, you know, what are the outcomes? Um, I'm more interested in like, what is it gonna feel like yeah. when we get there? And I say that in a moment where it feels really far away, but this, this call um, gave me, um, I don't wanna say hope because that feels like um, hopey, changey, you know, um, mm-hmm. love and light bullshit, yeah. but it gave me a sense um, it gave me a sense that we can stand in the fire, that we can stand in the in the chaos and in the mess of this moment, in the overwhelm, um, in the uncertainty, and that we can still find our way through. Like that's that's I think what I took away from this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it reminded me of, of what Mama Ruby, who Ruby Sales, you know, who we both know and love, um, when, you know, elders kind of put you in your place sometimes. And she does a really good job. <laughs> <of that. laughs> and she, you know, when I try and talk to her about healing justice or healing in our movements, you know, which is my whole thing is like, I want to, you know, talk about healing and resilience in our movements. And she's like, look, if the justice you're trying to work towards isn't healing, then it's not justice. Mm-hmm. She's like, this is not a separate thing or a new thing, kids. Right. Like, you know, and so I think that that's what this conversation reminds us of and kind of helps us question and think about and be curious about um, is that all movement work is or should at least be in some way healing. And so I yes. hope that that is a question people can hold as they listen. Y'all are going to love this conversation. Um, let's get on with it, shall we? Enjoy. Today we have Kazu Haga. Kazu is the founder of the East Point Peace Academy, a core member of the Ahimsa Collective and the yet-to-be-named network, my favorite name, <laughs> and the author of Healing Resistance, a radically different response to harm. 
He teaches various aspects of nonviolence, restorative justice, and mindfulness. Born in Tokyo, Japan, he has been engaged in social change work since the age of 17, and full bios will get popped in the, in the chat. We also have Laura and Brie from the Brigada Laura Rodig Art and Propaganda Committee of the, here we go, Coordinadora Feminista, <laughs> um, Ocho de Marzo. And my Spanish started to sound Italian, I know. Um, and they're based in Santiago, Chile, and part of a big feminist and bigger social movement that they will tell you more about. Um, but their objective as their uh, direct action brigade is to take back the city through innovative art actions related to their feminist program. And then Zan West. Zan is the executive director of One Life Institute for Spirituality and Social Change, which provides healing justice for marginalized communities. She is also a preacher of Black Lives Matter and other millennial liberation theologies, a teacher of direct action, a grassroots organizer, and a mama to toddler glory. So most importantly, say one of most importantly. So we're gonna um, start with with the big question and kind of go from there. And Zan is gonna kick us off with this, with the question: How can our protest movements be sites of action and be sites of healing? Thanks so much. Um, so I think, you know, first I want to ground sort of my framework and saying that I'm someone who orients myself to movement very much with um, the principle of Sankofa, which is an Adinkra principle, which is the idea that to move forward, we have to bring what we left behind, right? We have to go back and get to move forward. And so um, I just want to ground the idea that in my moving forward, I am very much trying to reclaim and remember um, what we've left behind. And so in doing that, um, I really like to engage um, and reclaim indigenous practices from all over the world. Um, and in doing so, I think it's easy to recognize that most healing throughout time has been a communal practice. Um, and so my, my movement, my trajectory is very much about reclaiming those communal practices of how to heal together in community. Um, and so I think it's important for me to um, reflect on what are the ways that I have been healed in movement space. Um, so most importantly, um, just the process of creating community together has been an incredibly healing uh, experience for me. I think it's very easy sometimes when we look at marginalization and oppression through the lens of race or gender to think that um, people are in these communities of oppression, which can be true sometimes, um, but in my own experience, say, uh, such as queerness or disability, sometimes folks are really isolated in their marginalization, right? And so for me, being able to create a community of organizers that were not just doing direct action, but doing direct action specifically through a lens of queerness was incredibly healing to create this community of Black queer folks. Um, and there have been a number of different um, identity-based formations that I've been a part of, and that's a healing experience to create that kind of community. Um, and to me, that's part of the indigenous practice, right, of creating community around healing. Um, and so that's, you know, uh, like for one example, I'll say most of my life I did not identify as a queer femme because the majority of the ways that I had seen um, femme identification did not resonate with me 
But once I was able to be part of these militant communities of queer femmes who were like, what you ain't gonna do is, I was like, oh, that's me, <laughs> right? Um, so there was like an identity formation that was able to happen um, in my community movement work. And I think that's really the best of times of our healing. I think also for me as a queer femme, um, the act of taking up space, right? Um, those times that I've shut down intersections and stood in the intersection, those times that um, I've stood up to whatever it is that we call law enforcement, um, the times that I've been involved in like shutting down a um, city council meeting and being like, now we gonna have the people city council meeting, right? Those are like very empowering places of being able to take up space especially, you know, as someone who pretty much since I was born in Oakland has been being pushed out of this city, right? So the act of taking up space is very healing. Um, so those are two ways that I feel like I've definitely been healed um, inside of my movement organizing. And I think, you know, what I would really like to see in our movement is this thing that um, I like to think of as redefining success. I think too often our movements, um, our narrative around success is, did we shut the entire system down? <laughs> Which is like a really difficult um, place <laughs> to hold yourself to. Or even the like, did we get the law changed? Did we get the policy revoked? Like all of these things. Um, but what does it look like for our definition of success to become, did we work well together? Did we feel healed? Does my spirit feel good? Did I witness joy? Um, did I feel empowered, right? Like if we start to build our movements around these narratives of that being what it means for us to feel successful, um, which is really to me practicing new ways of being together, right? I think our movements are most healthy and most healing when our definitions of success are, are we practicing new ways of being together? Mm, thank you. And we'll dig in more, but um, Laura and Bree, do you want to go next? Hi, first of all, we're really glad to be here in this conversation. Um, so as Karin told at the beginning, we're part of a quite big organization, which is called Coordinadora Feminista Ocho de Marzo, which means uh, feminist coordination for the 8th of March. Uh, and we are based in Santiago, Chile, and our objectives as an organization is to build a feminist and multinational program with demands and proposals for a feminist uh, country, for a feminist world. We have international links uh, and we build it with millions of women every year. Uh, we defend it with them in the 8th of March. And we develop tons of actions that allow us to go forward into not only being ourselves that we are talking, but also to bring to the streets those voices that have been shut, shut up, shut down for centuries in our country, especially for women and for all gender oppressed people. For us, it's really important to, as an organization, not to only focus on one topic, but to understand that the movement is a whole, that everything needs to be changed. And that means that everyone needs to be part of it. We need to involve as many people as we, as we can and involve them not only in those um, behind the scenes action as women were normally used to, but to take a, a protagonist role, to be 
we to speaking um to be the first person to speak about what is happening to us and not having other people with other issues but not a necessarily violence or uh, gender oppression in general uh, being talked for us. Uh, we are part of a committee of this organization, which is uh, normally activated by over 200 women and dissidents uh, throughout Santiago and other regions of the country. And Bri is going to talk more specifically to Gala, but you know that we're just representing a larger group that's been working since 2018 uh, and it's going on for two years with one of the most massive feminist uh, march this year with over a million women in the main capital of the country. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so we're spending a little bit more time giving context because we know that not everyone is totally up to date about the political uh, activity of Chile. So um, Lala did a good introduction to the kind of the moment that we're in and in that we are like protesting and acting in. So um, feminism as like a political force and a social force has since 2018, right? We had a big wave of university occupations and other feminist projects like during that period. And since then, like it's only gotten stronger and expanded to more areas of struggle, right? It's not just like feminism is this narrow little separate activity. It's something that we do in the labor movement. It's something that we do in the fight for a uh, fair pension system. It's, it's kind of present in all areas where there is like a fight against oppression or against capitalist exploitation, right? Um, I'm sure most of you, if you have heard about what's going on in Chile, you heard that we had uh, basically a revolt in October of last year, and we are approaching the one year anniversary of that now, and that's going to be very politically significant for us as feminists, but also as people living in this country and affected by you know, the context that we're living in, right? Um, so um, for the past couple of months uh, since March, we've been in the same situation that a lot of our uh, friends and comrades in the US have been in, that we were forced inside of our homes and that uh, us in the Brigada, we, we live for street action. So we really had to rethink how we wanted to do that work and involved a lot of shifting to online right? activities like through social media, um, maintaining like meetings and other sorts of structures online. Also, um, because it was um, necessary, uh, we also had to participate in lots of uh, mutual aid projects and those could uh, were at times very individual but also uh, much bigger projects that we coordinated and coordinated with other uh, social organizations to carry out. Um, the final part of the context that we're in right now is that things are starting to open up again and people are starting to return to the streets. Um, people are starting to mobilize and march again. 
And also, consequently, we are starting to face uh, violent police repression again. It was quite terrible at the height of the revolt last year. Um, we had hundreds of people had their eyes shot out from uh, rubber bullets. We had people kidnapped. There's uh, allegations of torture, of sexual torture. Right? And now that there's more physical protests and confrontations, we can expect that that sort of physical repression is also going to be increasing for us. Um, so I would say like the main question we have for ourselves as feminists kind of approaching this moment is like, how do we respond to like the challenges, uh, potential and threats that this new period will present us with? but also that um, we need to focus on care, like as our source of strength and also as our like form of struggle, right? And even our site of struggle when we're talking about healthcare, about education, about childcare, about elder care, like how that is also part of our political program, not just our individual way of caring for each other in the context of the movement. Um, Lala, do you have more to say about uh, responding to the question? Yes, just a small thing to add. Um, it's, it's important that what we do as activists, uh, we do it uh, in sense of the program that we're defending and that therefore what, as Karin said at the beginning, we are putting ourselves in the streets and our, all of our actions are intended for people to be in the streets in a way in which is safe, in which we know we're with each other, in which uh, we also understand that not everyone can be there and that therefore we're there also for those who can't. Not, not only for those who, because not everyone that uh, is giving the fight are, like the population that want to give the fight is bigger than the population that can actually be fighting. And it's important to recognize that as we as bodies, we're not only there for ourselves, it's always important to, for us not to think of us as individuals, but as a whole collective, not only for those we know, but for everyone. Yeah, and I would add to that, we can specifically right, who can't be here uh, to struggle in person, and also for all of the people who have died, you know, people who were detained and disappeared during the dictatorship, who are part of our political legacy, right? And then also for the people, um, you know, who have been killed during the most uh, recent round of protests uh, last year. Well, I'm looking forward to, thank you to hearing um some of those specific examples when we, we go around again. I'll let Kazi sort of first give a, the, the big picture on, um, on this question and then we'll, we'll dig in. Yeah, thank you all so much. Um, and, and thank you, Bree, just for naming political prisoners at the end there, because I, I work a lot in prison. So I've been thinking a lot about the, the, the people that I work with in prison. Actually, have this like in some way. I think all prisoners are political prisoners because the system of policing and incarceration was created by our political system. So, um, definitely sending a lot of love to to the folks in there. And uh, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot recently about paradoxes, and 
there's a, a Jain teaching um, from the spiritual tradition of Jainism that I've been studying a lot recently called Anekantavada. And Anekantavada is translated often as many-sidedness or not one-sidedness. And within the concept of Anekantavada, they say that there's seven different truths that always exists all at the same time. Um, and those seven truths are, in some ways it is, in some ways it is not, in some ways it is and it is not, in some ways it is and it is indiscernible, in some ways it is not and it is indiscernible, in some ways it is, it is not, and it is indiscernible, and in some ways it is indiscernible. And somehow we have to hold the complexity that all of that exists at the same time. And so I want to share one paradox that comes to mind as we talk about how to make uh, resistance work healing, which is that on the one hand, as others have shared, just the act of being in resistance spaces is incredibly liberating for the person who's involved, right? Because these institutions of power have told particularly marginalized people that they don't have power that we just have to accept the realities that we're living in and to cut through that delusion and say, no, we actually have power to change our own conditions that we have agency is incredibly liberating and, and, and can be healing in and of itself. So that exists as a, as a truth that is 100%. And, and at the same time, I also want to push back on the delusion of individual liberation, that somehow if I'm liberated, then I'm good, right? That, that, that if I'm able to find liberation or if my movement is able to find justice for my people, then we're all fully liberated. And I think that is a delusion that we have embodied because of this dominant paradigm that we live under. You know, there's a, a beautiful teaching that comes out of the Aboriginal people of Australia that says, that if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound with mine, then we can walk together. And that speaks to this idea of beloved community and, and, and mutual liberation and real solidarity. And I oftentimes wonder, because that's a quote that's popular in activist circles, how many people truly believe that? Or do we only believe that my liberation is bound with the liberation of the people that I like? and that the universe weaves separate webs of interdependence based on our political affiliation? Or do we truly believe that my liberation is bound with the liberation of all life? And, it, and it's, it's, it's dependent on the, the, the authenticity and the strength of my relationship with all people and of land and of earth. And if that's the case, then we need to build movements that are not only healing for myself as an individual, but healing to all relationships. And you know, one of the things that I've noticed is because I'm under no illusion that um, we don't need movements that use escalated forms of, of nonviolent tactics to try to like shut down intersections and occupy government buildings. And one of the things that I've noticed in my experience is that the more we escalate our tactics of action, the more we also oftentimes escalate shaming and the more we escalate this black, white, us versus them, right versus wrong worldview, which is a dominant worldview way of looking at things. Everything is right or wrong, black or white, us and them. And it's that worldview that is at the heart of destroying this planet. 
So the, the, the big question that, that I have no answers for that I'm here to explore with all of you is like, yeah, how do we build movements where tactically we're shutting down a highway, shutting down a factory, shutting down like the, 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 like the, the, the culture, the dominant culture, and at the same time, spiritually leading with a spirit, not of shutting it down, but opening up. How do we open up opportunities for healing and transformation? And I'll just close by saying that one of the incarcerated trainers that I work with um, here in California once told me that um, resolving a conflict is about fixing issues and reconciling a conflict is about repairing relationships. And if focus on relationships, then we may be able to resolve issues and pass legislation and create new policies, but relationally we may be getting further apart. So I think we have to keep our eyes on the long-term goal of like, I don't care about any piece of legislation that is passed if that's all we're doing, right? Obviously fixing issues is oftentimes a, like a necessary stepping stone to repairing relationships. Like I can't repair a relationship with someone who's trying to kill me. And at some point we need to be, um, we need to have our eyes focused on the healing of relationships. So yeah, I'll pause there for now and looking forward to hearing lots more. Whew. Opening round. <laughs> Thank you all. I, uh, I had the blessing of speaking with everyone separately. So I, you know, I just know how moving and exciting this is. And I, I see where we can go. Before we yeah, launch, like, sort of into theoretical realm, I was wondering, um, you know, but all of what you said, and then also in our conversations, you'd all talked about actions that really, um, and, and ways of designing movement that really speak to memory, uh, past trauma, shame. And I was wondering, um, Laura, if you wanted to start by sort of sharing some of the actions, um, and Brie, that you've been doing in, in Santiago, um, and how they, they might speak to that, and then uh, we can go from there. Yes, indeed. Um, I think uh, for us, our actions are about um, recovering our memory, strengthening our present memory, and building memory of future. So with that, we create like a new history for ourselves. Um, and among those actions, that what one of the main, like the most massive action we've done so far, uh, it was one of our first actions in which we renamed the names of uh, subway stations. We, we named all like 42 subway stations all at once uh, at the beginning of March of 2018, 2019. Um, and we renamed them with names of um, women that were killed uh, during the dictatorship period. Uh, women that from the culture, uh, artists, uh, women from, and, also gender oppressed, other gender oppressed people, um, trans people, uh, literary figures that are so relevant for us, uh, um, social ambiental, I'm not sure if that's how you like, ambientalist, uh, people that, um, Macarena Valdez, which is like a massive name for mm -hmm. us. Uh, she's a fighter for, um, for the earth, basically, she fought for water. She yeah, fought for, for water rights, water protection. Water. Exactly, uh, and we mm -hmm. renamed them all, uh, and it allowed us because we were never taught about all of these names. 
So it allowed us and it allowed uh, other women from different territories to rebuild the city in those terms in which was relevant for us, in which uh, our history classes never like took that perspective. And it allowed us to understand that we're here because of them also, and that we are here also for them. And we're here because of those far to come. Uh, and it, it makes us, it's healing in a way in which we understand that the struggle is not individual and that the way to fight it, it has to be in our terms. It can't be on those who have keep on oppressing us. And that means staying in a collective space and understanding that the fight that they had is also a fight that we want to keep on. I think we also has another action that resembles this. Yeah, so um, I joined the Brigada a little bit after that action, but I have to admit that it was a very uh, uh, influential one for me because I immediately saw like, wow, we, you have no idea. Every newspaper had an article about it. Every major one. It was like we changed the entire conversation of the country with that action. Um, but some of our actions were smaller, but also um, had like a different type of impact. So one really important theme for us, like as feminists, as feminists struggling in Latin America, especially, is talking about femicides, right? And in August of 2019, we did an action to both commemorate and like protest the uh, victims of femicide of that year. So for the first eight months of 2019, there were 39 uh, femicides. So um, the way that we organized this event was not just about the final action or like the media spectacle of it, but the process itself was about, um, was about healing, was about memory, was about being together in our collectivity and feeling the, the comfort and strength from that, right? And that's really important for us. So basically what we did is um, in the evening, we did a procession of uh, 39 women all wearing uh, arpieras, which are like um, pieces of embroidered uh, and kind of like a folk style in a way. And each embroidery had the name of one of the victims of femicide. So for me, that was like the first step, like maybe not of the healing, but of emotionally processing, is that you have to imagine that for months leading up to this event, everyone was at home embroidering or sometimes getting together to drink tea together and doing this sort of work with your hands. And I think creating things with your hands, especially in a common project towards a common goal, like can be very powerful, right? So that was the first stage before the procession even happened. Uh, then we also all wore um, morning clothes. So we were all in black and we all had white masks. And masks have a lot of significance, right? In political spaces. Uh, sorry that I'm right next to a People are going to have a fight out there. But anyway, so masks signify not just like anonymity, like, oh, you're going to do something illegal, so cover your face. It can also be like a way of erasing the individual, 
and saying that we are all together, just as we each carried the name of someone who was killed, we were representing all people who were affected, ourselves, our sisters, our friends, you know, everyone around the world. And um, yeah, so the final part of the action was doing the procession through kind of like a busy downtown boulevard where a lot of people were sitting on patios or shopping in the evening. And this is what we talk about when we talk about like reclaiming the city, like Laura said, it's that um, we were able to change the conversation. You could hear like little children saying, oh, what are those people doing? Why are they there? What is a femicide? As we were walking. And um, it was really powerful. It was powerful for us who were doing it. Very powerful. And feeling like when you're with 40 other people all together with the same project uh, with one message to communicate it's like a way for women who often feel very unsafe in public space right to feel very strong even when we're talking about the threat of violence against us so i think that was an example that really showed how we handle healing and uh, take care of each other in the movement Thank you. I'm so struck by the vision of um, literally, the literally embroidering, um, like a literal weaving of past and, and present. Uh, in, and so then the procession into the future. And um, then I'm thinking, you said, uh, when we talked, you asked, uh, what does it mean to create worship? And um, I don't know if you want to speak to that, but it did just make me think of, of you saying that. So. I'll let you speak. Yeah, totally. I think what I was speaking about is really um, trying to hold this um, intersection of spirituality and social change. Um, and I was just speaking with someone um, who's very much of this, um, I don't know how many people have heard about this movement to abolish Christianity. Um, and she was talking about like ending church, don't go to church. And I was like, look, here's the thing, church is still happening. It's just most congregations aren't going. Right, but I've had my highest level worship and spiritual experience in the street, right? Like shutting down an intersection and calling in indigenous healers and um, cleansing people and having a dance party in the middle of a busy, inter what would be a busy intersection um, is worship, right? Um, and fellowship. And so um, I think that's what I was trying to uplift um, is that these can be very spiritual experiences. Um, and then I also just wanted, I, I so love um, Kazu bringing up paradox. I am also a lover of paradox. <laughs> Someone once said to me, um, every great truth is a paradox. And um, what I, the paradox I really want to uplift um, that I think is really important to our movements is this paradox between agency and surrender. Um, because for me, so often when we're in the street, everything is about our agency, right? Um, we can shut this down, we can change the world, we can, um, you know, be more powerful than the thing that we're afraid of, which, you know, is kind of a trauma response for a lot of us. Um, but what my spirituality provides for me is a place for surrender, is a place to be soft and a place to be tender. And we need to um, have those parallel tracks in our lives, right? Where we can experience agency and we can su experience surrender. Um, but I would step out on a limb to say a lot of the trauma that I've seen in our movement spaces 
is these people that we really, really respect in public places who show up with so much agency that we really, um, we admire and we want to cultivate in our lives. But the problem is sometimes they come back into community with that same uh, level of agency and power um, and not much surrender, right? And so we need to be able to cultivate in our spirits how we're able to do both. Um, there was a meme going around um, maybe four or five years ago that said, turn up on the state so we can turn down on each other. Um, and that to me is absolutely the paradox of agency and surrender, right? Like how do we hold turning up on the state and turning down on each other? I love that question. And we are capturing them. Um, but yeah, I love, I love these questions, these paradoxes that we're holding. And I, I do have folks who thought they were coming to just get neat answers. <laughs> we ain't gonna have them, but I hope that you're finding these threads and hearing echoes of um, both really specific things and also the questions we wanna be and this, this sort of spiritual intention that we wanna be bringing to, to, our, to our movements. Kazu, do you wanna to add anything? Sure, yeah. Uh, first of all, I love that paradox between agency and surrender. It's so true. Like, it's, it's crazy that there's actually this, like, liberating thing about surrender. Um, so really appreciating that. And, and also love the conversation around memory. Um, I know that in my own path, remembering my own traumas and bringing them back up and giving space to it has been so important in my own path of healing that you know I had I experienced a lot of trauma as, as a young child and when I was young because I was young and because I didn't have support systems I didn't have the emotional intelligence or the resources to actually like feel what I was feeling because the only way to like release something is to really like sink into it and to feel it right and so I think a lot of my own trauma healing work that I've been doing I, I've, I've described it as like retroactively feeling the emotions that I couldn't feel when I was a kid because when I was experiencing trauma as a kid I completely shut down and so those experiences impressions became like frozen in my body and part of my work right now is remembering what it actually felt like as a child to go through these experiences and allowing myself to cry because I couldn't cry when I was younger, right? And that's how I've been in healing my own trauma. And I think that's what we're asking our societies to do, right? Like I have my own core traumas, which were like became embodied when I was a child. That's, that's my core trauma. So what is the core trauma of this nation state called the United States of America? Like this nation is founded on the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples how do we remember that and collectively remember what that experience was like and as a nation learn to grieve together so that we can actually heal those wounds because every instance of injustice today is is the result of us not having healed those those core wounds they're directly tied to those those legacies and so, you know, if you think that we can understand the Black Lives Matter movement without understanding the 400 year history of state violence against black communities, like you don't get the movement. And so how do we remember all of what led up to 
the exact moment that we're living in and how do we truly allow ourselves to feel into that. And so I think the, the idea of bringing up memory is so important and, and not just the memory of trauma, because I also, you know, talk about how, like, it's not just trauma that our ancestors passed down to us, right? We also have an incredible wealth of intergenerational wisdom. And I think part of our work in this generation is taking the wisdom that has been passed down through the generations and mixing it with the trauma that has been passed down through the generations so we get to pass on resiliency. And so um, I think like a lot of the work of, of training communities for resistance and, 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 and political action has to be about on a long-term level, um, committing ourselves to healing our own individual traumas so that we're not acting that out in our own families and communities because that has ripple effects. And then in the medium term, our movement spaces, I think need to do a lot better job of creating spaces. And One Life does an amazing job of this, right? Creating explicit spaces for grief and rage. Because oftentimes like there's so much judgment put on, particularly in this country, in this current context of black rage. And there was a beautiful sign that I saw on social media recently of a white woman who was at a protest and her sign said, if my son went to get Skittles and didn't come back, if my son went for a jog and didn't come back, if my son was driving home and didn't come back, I'd wanna burn everything down too, right? So like that rage is so righteous and legitimate. And if we on our in our movement spaces aren't creating containers where people can sink into that rage, then it's gonna get expressed into the streets. And the streets is not, a place that is the most conducive space for healing through our unprocessed grief and rage, right? So it's not about judging outward expressions of rage in the streets, but creating places that are more conducive to holding those strong emotions. Um, and then in the short term, I think we need to, to be teaching everyone emotional regulation tools, like every nonviolent direct action training, we need to teach people how to shut down an intersection and remember to breathe while we're doing it. And so I think those are some of the resources that we need to do to, to be able to, to like bring up these historical memories and stay grounded so that we can be a, a healing presence through it all. I would like to add or comment. Um, for us in Chile, um, well, we're clearly diff like from a different culture. Um, and for us, um, for instance, in terms of uh, violence and putting your rage in the street, uh, I'd ask like of art and propaganda and on the other hand coming from and being part of a revolt um, that is allowing us to change like we have a new election in this month yeah on October to change our constitution uh, for us for instance uh, the the moment in which people decided that we've been a contained country a contained culture uh, we've never have had the space to talk about our past, our present. And what happened is that uh, people decided that the only way there was, there's no other, there, there was no other way, it was to take it up in the street, to put it all in the street and to take over the street for over two, three months. It was actually for us of a, a, a pandemic, not only, um, in terms of uh, not being able to uh, be in the streets and meet our um, loved ones, but it's also because it came in the middle of our revolt process in our country. 
so I would think in terms of a gray, a more gray area, um, that putting your rage in the street and putting your rage in a place in which you're not violent necessarily against people, but against um, a system that has been oppressing you, a system that has continued, that is currently oppressing you. We're currently having militaries in the streets. Um, I don't think I, I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think it's important also that it happens because if it doesn't happen there, if it doesn't happen in the street against the system, against those institutions that uh, are permanently telling us that anything we want won't come, um, it needs. It's better to for it to be expressed there than to be expressed at home, uh, in a way. Uh, and on the other hand, I also believe I. I do like this parallel against between agency and surrender, uh, but understanding surrender uh, not as um, taking like taking the back seat or not not being part of the fight, but surrender in terms of how we care and we take care of us and others, and how we get like mutual support and understanding that. Um, we can't do it all by ourselves and that everything that's happening is much bigger than than what like than what we can do that the strength we as individuals have and for me surrender has to be has to do with humility to for understanding that there there's there's limit on what we as individuals can do uh just that um, I wanted to add a little thing to that. I think that was perfect, really well said. Um, but I wanted to add that when the big revolt happened, right, it started in mid-October of last year, um, the president immediately ordered a state of emergency and put the military in the street, right, to be used to suppress social unrest. And that was the first time that had happened since the dictatorship. And it was ripping open like the wounds of trauma of people who had lived through it. And it was even for me coming from a completely different context, having arrived in Chile at age 30, it was terrifying to look out my window and see like military vehicles literally like rolling down the street outside all night. Right? But the thing that changed that feeling of terror and isolation was going out into the streets especially to break the curfew, right? The curfew would start at 10. And um, in my neighborhood, we all spontaneously, we did not have like a prior organization or plan. People walked out into the street and followed the sounds of people banging pots and pans. And people would just grab something from their kitchen and go out. And this, this is also part of our political history from resistance of the past right, doing the noise demonstrations and going out into the streets, my little streets in my little neighborhood, meeting my neighbors. Now we do have a neighborhood organization and I have community. And even during the pandemic and the quarantine and we had a very strict lockdown, I got to maintain those neighborhood relationships and to have some sort of structure and support just within one block of my house. And that was like the cure for the fear and isolation and anxiety about not knowing what would come next or how violent it would be.
Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing so many um, themes that are both sort of culturally specific and also cross-cultural, sort of the need for space, for grief, um, for joy. Like I actually just, I, that, that subway um, action, right? It, it was both, it was both creating memory, but also, I don't know, I just feel like we used to do that stuff a little, well, I don't know, back in the day, we pasting was like a real thing, you know? And, um, and I, and, you know, I, like a university, we like had it, so when everyone came in, we had like, you know, plastered the walls with something. And I just love this sort of um, cheekiness and the, the humor. And I think that um, there is something both incredibly serious and kind of um, uh, chutzpahdik. Citizen wealth folks always hear me say chutzpahdik, which um, uh, about, about that. And also like your, um, and making those in power seem ridiculous, you know? And so I also think it makes, it just subverts things. And so also, um, hearing, hearing that, and then really hearing about, um, hearing these, um, themes around, um, the collective and, um, and it's sort of at any size, right? Sort of small collective, like the intersection, uh, the neighborhood mutual aid, the, the feminist collective, but that, that is something that I think um, in the United States um, and certainly in the dominant culture, I should say of the United States, that that individualism is, um, it, it impacts our movements so much. And, and I appreciate Kaza you saying like, what is the work that we have to do um, like what is the work that we have to do to be able to show up like the individual work to kind of break out of the kind of shackles of individualism um we're going to take questions a minute but i want to see so much has been said so i just want to see if um you wanted to to react to anything else or if anything has been sparked for you maybe actually i don't want to put you on the spot with zan i was just thinking about also um the, the question around the before and after the action in particular, and, and I know so much of your work is that, so I feel like we're alluding to it, but I would love to hear a bit more from you about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, that's where I think maybe hopefully I can offer a couple like real practical, tactical <laughs> suggestions. Um, the first thing I would say, um, I, I think would be more healing in our movement is if we really started to engage this idea around urgency. Um, I've been involved in a number of actions that um, a lot of the trauma came from our unwillingness to wait, honestly, right? And that's, that's part of the surrender, right? Is um, I saw this movie not so long ago where this guy was training to beat a world record and he trained for 10 months and everyone in the country knew he was going to do this thing. But if he got it wrong, he might die. And the day before he was willing to be, to say, I'm not going to do this. Right. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I've never been in a movement space like that. <laughs> we're always like, we might all go to jail, but we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> um, and that creates a lot of trauma. Right. And so I think, think um, a lot of it comes from um, really resisting urgency. Um, and being able to hold our own spirits and our wellness as part of our risk assessment, right? So sometimes our risk assessment is like, will people be harmed? Will it impact the community? Um, but a lot of times our risk assessment is, isn't like, what will that do to my spirit and my wellness, right? Um, and so I think asking those questions are really important. Um, but also in terms of um, during and after care, um, 
we've done like community care teams, which are really important, right? And so um, someone um, I think was asking a question about what can folks do who can't be in the street? Community care teams are really awesome, right? So if we know folks are gonna be locked up, taking on direct confrontation, what does it mean to just like pack up care packages and mail them to them? To make phone calls the next day and say, how are you doing? Um, stopping by people's houses, right? Like this is all um, what it looks like, I think, to really be supportive of the movement and create community care around it. Um, also, I wanna really uplift um, the work of this book that I've been reading, Trauma Stewardship, which um, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. Um, but part of the premise of this book is really talking about those of us who do this work. We are choosing to engage some of the ugliest parts of society, right? We're taking on trauma, particularly for me as a healer, I'm witnessing people's grief, I'm holding their grief while holding my own. We're taking on um, a lot of the ugliness in a world that I believe uh, nature holds a balance between joy and pain. And a lot of times we're staring directly into the pain. And so I think after a lot of the care for me really looks like intentionally being present to joy. You know, so many of these movement spaces I've been in, as soon as the action is over, we're like planning the next action that's next week. And we're going to be up all night doing it until we get there, right? Um, but what does it look like just to take some time to really be present to joy? Um, when I was doing the Black Brunches, one of the, my favorite thing about it is we would do these like turnips in these restaurants and then we would all go and have brunch together. We would cook for each other and have brunch together, right? It and it was an intentional presence to joy. Um, so I think um, tactically those are some of the things that I could offer in terms of before and after. And then also just like bringing our spirituality in, you know, I've loved that actions to just create, I made an altar in front of the mayor of Oakland's house, right? Um, that was one of the best things I've ever done. I'm like, I'm praying for you, <laughs> um, you know, to, for your spirit to turn. Um, and we can pray over people before they're involved in actions, um, after actions. Um, I think our, um, our lineages have a lot of evidence for how to heal people in those ways. And so I just invite people to really think about, um, how to bring those in in very inclusive ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, for us, uh, it it has also a lot to do with uh, with all of that, like caring all throughout the process, especially before and after. Um, it also has to do with um, for those that you've known. But for us, for instance, we are a group of people that we, we've never met before. We just, we're all just feminists. Um, and we just met and we've been meeting because people come and go. Uh, and for us, it has a lot to do with trusting and how care has a lot to do with how you trust others and how you understand that even though we've been taught not to trust anyone, we're fighting that and that through trust, you can build something. Uh, and caring means also for us preparing, of course, like if we are going to be in the streets, preparing like in terms of uh, legal support, just in case uh, to have like uh, anyone in a phone call of distance uh, in case anything happens, but also understanding that uh, uh, we're all, it's important to all know that if we can't be part of a, 
action in particular because we are too afraid or because we don't want to or because we think the risk is too much, that's okay. I think caring also needs to, uh, like understanding where we, where every one of us comes from is really important in the caring process um, in terms of how you understand that maybe one day you're gonna be in the first line of battle and then the next day you're gonna be in your home helping from the sideline. Uh, and I think for us, that's been really important, like preparing in terms of uh, technical things, but also preparing our minds in respecting us all in our group and understanding that every day is a different day in this fight and that it's better for us to be a long-term group than to give it all and then just can't do anymore. That's yeah, so cute. Oh, sorry. Oh, just really quick to add to that. Uh, I think Lala said everything, um, but uh, Zan's comments like really resonated with like how we tried to build, like what you said about joy. I think I was like, yes, that is, that is what we're about. Um, what I wanted to add is like that the process of being in our group is it's like you never get to feel down on yourself because we have like a WhatsApp group and all you have to do is say, oh, I'm having a hard day. Then you get 40 women being like, you're amazing. You're the best. You could do it. Oh, you're so cool. Like, and if you uh, like everyone pumps each other up so much like and if you want to say something really personal you say i'm having a crisis i need help the same 40 people are also about to pile on you with resources like that for me is like creates the greatest sense of safety that one can have in unsafe times is having like uh like lala said that um you have the network of people you don't know everyone not everyone is your best friend right? Some are close, some are more distant, but you will all treat each other like you are members of the same family. And uh, you can't come for one of us without getting all of us in any context. Yeah, all of us or none of us. I, um, I just really appreciate that actually, um, or what I, I was thinking about how the, um, the thing around the, the piece around care is also the piece around the non-urgency, right? It's saying that, um, that you're like each of us actually like attending to ourselves, finding our roles, finding our voice. Like we have time for that, even as uh, we see something right up close, there is enough of us uh, to do that. Um, so that, that was really, that kind of clicked click together for me. Um, Kazi, do you want to add anything at this moment? You don't have to. <laughs> I don't know. Man. I mean, there's like so much that I could say to everything, but just really hey. quick, the urgency piece. Um, I think part of what spiritual practice helps us to do is to live into the reality that time is not a, a linear experience. And that like, because like, this is one of the other paradoxes, right? Is like, there is urgency of this moment. Like this is a really urgent moment and it's somehow possible to move through that urgency with slowness. Like there's that beautiful quote that I love that says, um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That somehow like slowness is fast. And, and I think again, it's, it's oftentimes spiritual practice that allows us to hold these paradoxes that's so important. And um, 
just one last thing that I want to say right now is, is uh, in, in our work here in Oakland, we're, we're really encouraging people to, to get into teams. And like, I think like the old school term was like affinity groups, right? Which comes from long traditions of Spanish anarchists organizing the civil war and, and the, the uh, clamshell alliance and all that. And somehow that I, I think is a really powerful tool that seems to have gotten lost. So we're encouraging everyone in our communities as we prepare to mobilize around the November elections here in the US to call two or three up to eight of your close friends, families, whatever, and start being in community and start asking each other questions of like, what makes me scared right now? Like, what are you afraid of? How can we support each other? And like commit to taking action together because it's much easier to take action as a member of a team of five people than it is as one in thousands. That will give you empowerment and it's in those teams that we can do some of this deeper work around grief tending and rage tending and relationship building and it's an incredibly healing and empowering process to be part of a small team. So I encourage everyone to start thinking about like who are your people that you're committing to being in action spaces with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's lots of um, like the it's not resurrecting. I hate to sound like back in the old days, which I realize I'm sort of sounding right now, but I also do think it's like resurrecting the phone tree has been something I've been seeing that really came during the pandemic. And also as we see people preparing for this sort of will they won't they eviction moment, right? Like what is it? Um, what are some of the really sort of simple tools that we have to, to connect ourselves to, to each other? Um, there's a question from Ade in the, in the box. This question is for Zan, Laura, and, Kaz, and Kazu. Can you each share more about your own ancestral strategies, wisdom for care that you find yourself leaning more on during these times of collective resistance and healing? Mine is right behind me, uh, is my ancestral altar. That's kind of the, the centerpiece for my altar and just sitting in front of it every day. And yeah, like knowing that we all have ancestral practices that my immediate people have been using for thousands of years. And, you know, I grew up, like I, I was born in Japan, but I grew up in the States. And for many years of my life, I had this judgment about meditation practice. And that judgment said something like, meditation is something that white people do because of the, like, the dominant culture of meditation in the West. And then at some point I was like, wait a second, this is something that my people have been doing for thousands of years. Why do I feel like I don't have access to it? And so it's been a real long journey of reclaiming, but not just meditation pra practices, but a lot of like somatic practices that exist in Asian cultures. Um, so yeah, those are some of my ancestral practices. And, and I think we all need to, to, to look back into our own lineages and, and find those tools. Yeah, I think for me, um, it's definitely been a lot around ancestor practice um, and understanding that, you know, as Kazu was uplifting, um, what I'm struggling with is something my folks have been struggling with since they came to this country, since, you know, ancestors I don't even know. Um, there's this one song that says, my great great grandma was born a slave, but she found liberation before the grave. Um, that's my story exactly. Um, and so that's powerful, right? Um, 
what it means for us to be born into bondage and yet find liberation. Um, but also even, you know, my ancestor practice, the knowledge of being able to go far enough back that um, there's such this narrative in this country that uh, blackness was created in slavery. And that's the only thing that bondage is um, synonymous with blackness. And the truth is um, when I uplift my ancestors and create um, connection with them, I'm able to uplift um, the ways we have been free in bondage, but also a time prior to bondage, right? Um, that that is not our actual legacy um, of what it means to be black on this planet. Um, and then, you know, many of the practices that go with it, um, I think even in terms of trying to navigate um, climate change, and we were talking about before we broadcast this morning, you know, Kazu and my state is on fire. Um, and so what, how my ancestors explained um, what was happening in the earth around them, right? So for me, even it was like, okay, um, like uplifting the Orishas and being like, okay, Oya brought the lightning. And then a lot of these fires, the wildfires in California um, were brought by some lightning that came, right? So it's like Oya brought the lightning and then, you know, Chongo brought the fire. So what are my ancestors, what are the Orishas trying to say and what's happening to the earth around us? And how am I trying to um, understand that these forces work, are working for us um, and what's happening there has been a very uplifting practice for me. Um, for me, this is um, sort of a difficult question uh, because in a way I, in a personal level, don't have any day-to-day uh, -day ancestral practices. Uh, and mainly as a, like as a feminist organization, we do recognize, we do, um, we build with uh, indigenous communities, uh, our feminism, uh, and we do, we take part in their actions, but we don't, we're part of the action, but we are not protagonists of those actions so we uh, help for them to have a real space uh, in every day uh, and in all of all of the things we do we try for them to be also protagonists because they've been well the main oppressed uh, community in our country uh, since colonial times uh, but me as an individual, I don't have any, but I do take, like, I participate in those. And I do believe that how we are building our, like, our communities, how we are building our organization has a lot to do with what has before and organized and how we're building, not only in terms of ancestral, uh, as our indigenous communities, but, but also in terms of those other women organizing in the past and taking like this ancestry not only in terms of uh, like in lineal timeline but also in terms of how we're building over what has been done by others permanently and how we're taking part in their process and putting into ours um, but yeah for me it's it's more more than an ancestral practice, it has to do a lot with uh, how we gather. It has to do a lot with how uh, ancestral communities, indigenous communities gathered before, how we trust each other and how we organize. And, and this lively spirit of fighting, like uh, Mapuches 
indigenous community is a fighting community. And I think there's a lot of that in our blood, but I wouldn't say uh, it's what we do because I would feel a bit weird, like taking their practices as my own. Totally, totally. Um, appreciating you all sharing those those different more personal um, perspectives and um, and I like that as you just said um la, the 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 how, it's about how we gather right and I think that is um, that's almost and I know that there's other folks that that use that expression um, but I do think there is so much of um, what we're saying about our sites of movement is really how you know how do we gather how do we prepare how do we invite uh what is it the physical space the spiritual space when we are gathered and then that gathering zan like you were saying that gathering continues right the the ripple of that um from one action is there the next day and the day after um and so we that gathering is sort of again beyond time right this linear time or this very restricted space um I'm just checking. Um, okay, we're close to the end of time. And so I both want to sort of like make sure, well, I was going to resist, uh, honestly, what I would consider a bit uh, like white girl temptation, which was about to be like, let's end on an up note. Um, so noting that, um, but I, I want to end on a resounding note, you know? <laughs> um, and also, uh, and acknowledge the moment that we're in, in, in our different spaces, um, both community-wise and right, October is a huge month for folks in Chile and a time that we really all should be um, attending to and paying attention to because this is a constitutional crisis and we are, uh, are going to, we are in one and we will then see one to be sure in November. Um, and so we have this big time coming up and so I sort of want to have the last question really be, um, I was going to ask, how are you readying yourself? So it's a bit like, how are you readying yourself and your communities? And, and how are you sort of steadying yourself and your communities um, for, the, for the coming weeks and months? Um, and I'll just let whoever's moved to, to speak first. I think part of what we're doing is just being as proactive as possible because I think there's this like anxiety that people in the US have been feeling about the November elections. And what I see happening a lot is like people are just waiting to see what happens on November 3rd and then who knows where we'll be on November 4th. But again, like leaning into that one side of the paradox of agency that we can actually initiate action that we don't have to wait until and because let's also be real like regardless of who wins we're still in a crisis um and so part of what we're thinking in the bay area is getting people into teams and starting to build community and relationships and committing to some we have no idea what this is going to look like i was actually i didn't watch the debate last night because i was facilitating a visioning call to figure out what this might look like but we're thinking about what if we mobilized our communities and got people to commit to being in action together every single day for 10 days before the election and 20 days after the election, regardless of the result. So it feels like we're actually like having some agency over um, 
what happens and, and not just reacting to, to whatever happens in the outcome of the election. And so I think a lot of it is just like visioning what this world could look like and how do we embody that and preparing ourselves in our teams by building relationships and really talking about like what are the qualities that we long to see in our world as well as in direct action spaces? How do we begin the process of preparing to embody those qualities? And knowing that the, the deeper our, cause like we don't know what's gonna happen on November 3rd and afterwards, but the deeper our relationships are with each other, the easier it is for us to like, like uh, respond to whatever emerges. Um, and you know, I love the, the images, the videos that are, I've only seen it on YouTube of the, the murmuration of starling birds, where there's like thousands of birds in the sky and they like move and shift. And in Adrian Brown, uh, Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, she talked about how one of the ways that they do is every fullness of the, like the seven birds that are immediately around them and they respond to those seven and then those seven, like it, it kind of builds on a fractal like that. And so, yeah, like getting into small teams of three to seven, eight people and building enough relationships so that we can move smoothly through the chaos. Um, and the more teams there are doing that work, I think regardless of what happens, we'll be able to, to um, just emerge with, with, with whatever is there. So yeah, getting into small teams, doing spiritual work together, grieving together, building those relationships so that we can be ready for whatever happens. Uh, I can go next. So first of all, I really love the framing of the question. Like, I think it really like helped align my thoughts on things. Um, in a way, I think because I'm only present in both countries, because I have several decades of friends and family in the US, so there's no bit of information that doesn't arrive in my life somehow. But then also I have our own very significant issues here outside my front door. Um, but I think it's very interesting that there's like this coming together of these two important sort of like landmark events. In the US, it's the election, right, in November, and here, it's the plebiscite for the new constitution. And for us, it can be very scary. We literally have fascists and Nazis, not just fascists like, oh, I don't like them, they're fascists, like capital F fascists, mobilizing to, against uh, the plebiscite saying that we do not want a new uh, constitution. So it's really two competing visions for the future of the country and the people who live here. And it can feel very scary and stressful. And I definitely am sitting with that. But um, something that Lala mentioned to me when we were talking about what we wanted to communicate in this venue is that there is another really important anniversary that's being marked right now. And it's 50 years since the formation of the Unidad Popular government the government of Salvador Allende, you know, who was killed in the coup that was carried out in 1973. And the trauma of the coup is so powerful. And then the project of the dictatorship also to eradicate memory as it eradicated human lives, right? Uh, but the period that came before was one of great hope of envisioning 
a vastly different society and different world. And when I'm thinking now that we are not just reacting against a particular uh, vote, right? We are not just reacting, we are not just protesting. We are defending a movement for that better world and that we are part of the history and the memory of what came before. We are a continuation of that. And that is something that makes me feel very grounded because these ideas survived a nightmare. And like the ideas survived even when a lot of the people didn't. And that I was like, okay, I can be strong in this moment because I understand that we are part of something much bigger. I would say, um, I think it's beautiful how Bruce uh, speaks about it because it's about a process. And I think it's really important not to lose that, that it's a process with milestones uh, for us, the, for both of our countries, this election that's coming. Um, but it's a process that can't be lost in that milestone. And that coming together that for us is about organizing and not waiting, not waiting for things to happen but for making things happen and to take back what was taken from us, to not only from the dictatorship, uh, but also from colonial times uh, and for women from all through history. Uh, so it's about organizing and thinking what's that project of society that we were wanting to build and organizing in a prefigurative way in which we are built, we are organizing in a way in which we want the society to be. We are building teams, committees, and even when you have a personal affective relationship, it all has to be in those terms, in how you want that society to be. Every relation has to be marked in how the process you want to build. And I think it's really important faith in terms of uh, if a milestone doesn't go the way you're expecting to be, which I hope it doesn't, uh, but if it does, uh, thinking it as just a milestone, it allows us not to feel afraid again, not to feel defeated, and not to surrender in that other sense of surrender, in the way that then you stop, because we can't stop. The, the world will keep on spinning and those who don't want us to have the life that we and everyone deserves are going to keep on pushing for that type of society. So it's up to us to resist and to keep on. Um, I was just reminded of about four years ago, I was in Guatemala and we went to a site um, where we could look out at the ocean and they were explaining to me that um, this is where we saw the colonizers coming or this is where our ancestors saw the colonizers coming and were prepared and we didn't lose anybody because we were in such communication with our ancestors that we already knew the colonizers were coming. Now, I understand that things happen in like urban legend and lore, so don't at me with any real historical facts, but I still think it matters, like this story matters, right? Even as it's passed down through traditions. And I've really been sort of uplifting that as like, what does that mean for me to like stand on the shores? And my ancestors already told me that the colonizers are coming and how I need to respond. 
So the truth is one life is probably gonna keep, one life is gonna keep doing the work that one life does, um, which is giving people the grounding place to be in communication with their ancestors, with spirit, to know how we need to respond to these times. Um, you know, as Kazi was saying, I didn't watch the elections last night because um, I think there's something that happens to us that I sort of call psychological terrorism, but it's, it creates this static, right? Um, that for me makes it very hard to listen to uh, where spirit is calling me, where ancestors are calling me, because I'm so um, inundated in this world and the static of this world, right? So we will continue to cultivate places where people can hold that grief, hold that rage, um, but really be quiet enough um, and communal enough to listen to where we're being called. A lot of our work is around um, what is the difference in doing and being, right? And giving a place, giving folks who do a lot, a space to think about what they need to be for these times um, and to cultivate a response that's not grounded in reaction, but to um, create a response that's grounded in who am I supposed to be during these times and it's my belief that that could be different for all of us, um, but we will continue to try and create those spaces with a decreased amount of static um, so that we can listen and be responsive um, in a way that I think is really what we need in these times. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to think small. Who is your small group of people you work most closely with? How can you intentionally build containers for rage, joy, healing in a group with three or four other people in your movement community? Mm. I love that question and that call to action. Um, I wanna, I wanna just take a moment to thank all of the folks, all of the brilliant, wise leaders who were in this call. Uh, thank you, Kareen Lunk. Thank you, Zan West. Thank you, Kazuhaga, and thank you to the organizers from the Chilean movement, La Coordinadora Feminista 8M. Shout out to my co-host, Mickey Scott Bay Jones and the Faith Matters Network. You can check out their work at faithmattersnetwork.org. Thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you all for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for communities who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. All right, that was good. What do you think? I think it was great.